Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 19, verse 16 through 24. John chapter 19, verse 16 through 24. Let's pray for the reading and preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to know who you are. Help us to see that in the cross of our dear Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Graham Tomlin, in his book, Looking Through the Cross, wrote this. Some while ago, I picked up a book in a second-hand bookshop. It was an old, slightly faded paperback with what looked like an intriguing title, The God I Want. Published in the late 1960s, it was a collection of essays by various public figures explaining the kind of God they could cope with, the God they could bring themselves to believe in. None of them said they wanted a crucified God. See, that's true, isn't it? We all have heard those stories about gods that we would be okay with, gods that we could cope with, gods that we could be fine with, gods that we could deal with, you know, but if a God, if God is like this, then I'm not going to worship him. If God is like this, I'm not going to worship him. And here we are confronted with the God who was crucified. And we have to ask ourselves that question, is this the God I want? See, the journey to God, who God is, how he's revealed himself, begins in a very real sense at the foot of the cross. Our theme this morning is Christ goes to the cross so that we can go to the cross. And hopefully as we go along, you'll see what I mean by that with greater detail and greater, um, greater realization. So we got four points this morning. 
The first is crushing the skull. The second is counted with criminals. The third is kingship irrevocable. The fourth is closed divided. So let's look at that first point, crushing the skull. Right after Pilate finally gives in to the Jews, hands Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified, the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And then in verse 17, it tells us, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So one of the great mysteries of the gospel is that the way to overcome the curse is to become the curse. The way to overcome the curse is to become the curse. And in this connection, John mentions the instrument and the location of Christ's death. His cross, it says, carrying his own cross, he bore his own instrument of death, a tree upon which if anyone is hanged is considered a curse by God, cut off. That's where we are getting this understanding of in order to overcome the curse, you must become the curse. But also, it mentions the place, Golgotha, the place of the skull. He went out to this place. He was taken outside the camp, outside the city. Hebrews 13 speaks of this. It says, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. What is our response to that? Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For he, here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. What do I mean by that? Jesus went to the cross so that we could go to the cross. What well, says here, Jesus suffered outside the city gate. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. You see, going to Christ outside the camp, to the place of the skull, means we are willing to see that the Christian life is a life of following in the footsteps of Christ. Knowing that humility comes before honor. Knowing that Christ called us to pick up our crosses and follow him. And it is precisely in those moments that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how are you living the cruciform life? How is your image of what the Christian life looks like in line with what the author of the book of Hebrews says in line with what it means to be like Jesus. You know what it means to be like Jesus in this moment is carrying your own instrument of death outside the city gates because the death you are about to experience is so graphic, so horrific, that it cannot be something that is done inside the holy city of Jerusalem. But there is hope, right? I want us to think, is it significant that the place was called the skull? You see, if you know anything about death by crucifixion, you'll know that the main beam of the cross, the one that Jesus was carrying, would then be lifted up and placed into the ground. This is where the curse placed upon the serpent comes to fruition, and the curse placed upon Christ. 
One of the mysteries of the gospel, if not the great mystery of the gospel, is that in order to overcome the curse, you must become the curse. Genesis 3.15, God gave that first gospel message when he cursed the serpent. And he said to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. He will crush your skull. You see, as that main beam was lifted up and put into the ground on the skull, the crushing of the sun resulted in the crushing of the serpent. The accuser loses his accusations at the cross. The sins which he brought against us, Christ has now died to pardon. Romans 8 says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns no one? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Christ has conquered our sin and our greatest enemy on the cross. He openly put the kingdom of Satan to shame upon the cross. How are we to live now in light of that? We must remember that the death blow has been dealt. But we are still to be on guard against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That in the cross, Christ has empowered us to take off our old selves and put on the new. To put on Christ, to take on the mind of Christ. To believe that we are no longer under the reign of sin, but have been freed from the tyranny of the devil. How are we living now free from the slavery of sin? Knowing that the skull of serpent and Satan has been crushed. How do we respond when we fall into sin? With the knowledge that in the cross we are not only forgiven but empowered by grace to overcome it. These are things that we have to think of. Then when we as Christians sin, we must go back to the cross. Christ went to the cross so that we could go to the cross. So we crushed the skull, right? But he was also counted with criminals. Verse 18. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Isaiah 53 verse 12 reminds us that Christ, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord would be numbered with the transgressors. Part of the cross is realizing that Jesus was executed as a convicted criminal and subjected fully to the shame of crucifixion. The great horror and shame of it can be lost in us because we've been desensitized by the romanticizing of crucifixes, cross necklaces, pretty instruments of death painted in beautiful colors on the front of many religiously themed greeting cards. Death by crucifixion was brutal. Where a man was stripped naked, beaten, bloody, contorted, unable to breathe, shattered with pain, dehydrated, slowly fading toward their final breath. Therefore, it's important to note that John says, here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. You see, this is not only a fulfillment of prophecy, but it also tells us something about God's wrath against sin and his love for sinners. Calvin says, assuredly, we are prodigiously stupid, I like the way Calvin talks sometimes. We are prodigiously stupid if we do not plainly see in this mirror with what abhorrence God regards sin. 
And we are harder than stones if we do not tremble at such a judgment as this. When on the other hand, God declares that our salvation was so dear to him that he did not spare his only begotten son, what abundant goodness and what astonishing grace do we here behold. Teddy writes in his commentary, When we see the death of Christ in this life, it will neither be foolishness as it was to the Greeks, nor a stumbling block as it was to the Jews. You see, the Jews and the Greeks, they had their own book of, what God do I want? What God can I deal with? What God can I cope with? What God can I be okay with? But rather, an invaluable token and pledge of the power and wisdom and righteousness and goodness of God. You see, so many of us believe And we think that if God is an all-loving God, God cannot be a wrathful God. That he cannot be both wrathful and loving. He cannot be both just and forgiving. But the cross is proof that all our ideas about God are too small. We could not write a book big enough that says, what God do I want? Because there's only one God, and it's this God. He defies our thinking. The cross is the place where the wrath of God and the grace of God kiss. And it's the place we must go to in order to see the depth of his hatred of sin and evil and injustice. Look at Jesus hanging there on the cross, bloodied and naked and beaten. And that's just what you see with your your physical eyes. If you open your eyes spiritually, you see, look at Jesus there. The wrath of Almighty God being poured out upon him. Isaiah 53 says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And that is the sin. An evil and injustice that God hates. He hates it so much that he crushed his son. But it's also the place we must go to in order to see the magnitude of his grace and his mercy and his love. The cross is where we see how truly ugly our sin is and how truly wonderful God's grace is. So Christian, let me ask you, have you lost sight of the horror of sin? Look to the cross. But Christian, let me ask you, have you lost sight of the love of God? Look to the cross. So he crushed the skull. He was counted with criminals. Yet nonetheless, his kingship His kingship cannot be changed. It cannot be moved. It's irrevocable. So let's look at that. Verse 19 through 22. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. See, what we don't realize here is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. 
It's a joke. Remember, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Here's this man hanging on a cross, dying a criminal's death, and Pilate, with all the mockery in the world, puts on the sign for the reason he was crucified, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. See, not just a week earlier, Palm Sunday, the king was welcomed into Jerusalem with honor and glory. Friday of Passover, the king is nailed to a criminal's cross, spitten at, mocked, beaten. But here's the key, the eyes of faith. They see no difference between these two images. Kede states, as he went to the cross, he was still the king who was promised, however unlikely such an outcome must have seemed in the circumstances. You see, Pilate plays an ignorant role in his declarative, his declarative role of this moment in redemptive history. Nonetheless, he's used by God to express the unchangeable nature of Christ's kingship. He had no idea about Jesus' messianic kingship when he wrote the title, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He's only trying to take a jab at the Jewish leaders who had made so recently a convenient allegiance to Caesar. Oh, you said Caesar is your king. Well, guess what? I'm going to say Jesus is your king. (laughs) Ha, 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 take that. And the reason it was translated into Hebrew, Greek, and Latin is so that the insult could be seen before the whole world. So that everyone could read it. So that everyone could laugh at those silly Jews and all their foolishness. This made the Jews mad, of course, and they asked for an edit. They said, hey, hey, say that he only claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate swept this aside with, what I have written, I have written. I'm the one with the power here, and I will have my insult stand. And this is a great example of how God uses what men mean for evil, for good. Pilate's banter here with the Jews is dripping with sarcasm, but the irony is that Christ really is the king of the Jews. He wrote a truth he did not know, and he would not change it. Ketty writes, A gesture which was meant to humiliate both Jesus and the Jews ends up announcing that Jesus is is king and unwittingly furthers the continuing purpose of God to proclaim his name among the Gentiles. And Matthew Henry writes, He dies because the king of Israel must die, must thus die. His kingship cannot be thwarted. What God has written, he has written. And even the very thing which both the Jews and Pilate believe strips Christ from his rightful place as king, that is, being a criminal, dying the death of a criminal on a cross, is the very thing that gives Christ the right to it. Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and what? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It was his endurance of the cross, the scorning of its shame, that exalted him to the right hand of the throne of God. And that presents us with a question, doesn't it? 
those of us who are called to live cruciform lives, lives of the cross. How are we seeing the hardships in our lives in this light? How are we enduring them and scorning their shame? Knowing that whatever suffering we may endure in this life cannot compare to the weight of glory to be revealed in us. Whatever hardship you may be facing, whether it be financial, whether it be marital, whether it be interpersonal, whether it be internal, whether it be a great grief of loss, May you know that it's in the grace of God we endure these things and scorn their shame, knowing that the result is our glorification. So the skull was crushed, he was counted with criminals, his kingship cannot be changed. Lastly, his clothes were divided. Verse 23 and 24, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. It's a quotation from Psalm 22. You see, the humiliation of Jesus as the Messiah is the heart of this moment. The heart of the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Psalm 22. David wrote the psalm in the midst of great betrayal, David's greater son, as its final and greatest fulfillment. What we need to understand here is that Christ was stripped naked. And his clothing was divided among the soldiers who had done the deed. And nothing was left to his name. His nakedness and shame is shown to us here because we are to understand that he took on our nakedness and shame. And here we're back to the garden. Remember Adam and Eve after they had sinned, eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How they hid from God because they were naked and ashamed. And without Christ, we can never find enough fig leaves to cover ourselves before God. Christ takes us upon himself and calls upon sinners to receive the white garments of his own righteousness. Calvin says, let us also learn that Christ was stripped of his garments. and He might clothe us, clothe us with righteousness. That his naked body was exposed to the insults of men. That we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. And Ketty, in response to that, says, Here is the wonder and the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ is life for dead souls. So what then should be our response? Octavius Winslow, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, writes, Jesus has set before us the door of hope, even in the valley of his humiliation. I will give the valley of Accor for a door of hope, Hosea 2, verse 15. The gospel of this precious promise is found in the wondrous theme we are now contemplating. The humiliation of the incarnate God. To that humiliation we must sink. In that valley we must descend. Convinced of sin. Separated from all self-reliance and creature trust. 
emptied, humbled, laid low in the dust before God. We shall then find Jesus to be the door of hope set open before us in the deep and dark valley of our poverty, hopelessness, vileness, and abasement. Just the door we need is Jesus, a door to a Father's forgiving heart, a door to God's reconciled love, a door to the sweetest, closest, holiest fellowship and communion, a door into heaven itself, a door so wide that the greatest sinner may enter, door of pardon for the vile. Here the vilest enter in. Find the fruit of Jesus' toil, full of atonement for their sin. Do you see Christ in this way? Do you know Christ in this way? Do you believe in Christ in this way? Do you know that coming to the cross means seeing, seeing who we are, our sinfulness, our wickedness, our corruption? It's all on display there. We can't come to the cross as Pharisees. We can't come to the cross in our, in our Sunday best, outwardly looking like we've got it all together. We can't come to the cross like that. We come to the cross laid bare, hearts exposed. Truth of who we are in our brokenness and our depravity shown. But we leave the cross knowing that although God has seen us at our worst, He still loved us, forgave us, offered salvation to us in Christ, His Son, that we may pick up our cross and die to ourselves. And live for him. And so set your eyes of faith upon him who died to save you from eternal death. And let your hearts be filled with gratitude. We don't get to decide what kind of God we want. God has shown us who he is. And the cross of Jesus Christ. And Christ goes to the cross so that we can go to the cross to see ourselves in truth, to see our sin, to see our brokenness, to see our hopelessness. Christ goes to the cross so that we can go to the cross to find forgiveness, to find hope, to find life, to find grace, to find love and the sweet, sweet fellowship of our Heavenly Father. Christ goes to the cross so that we can go to the cross. Amen. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that you give us. Thank you for the salvation that you provided in Jesus Christ, your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.